Thank you, Ron. Would you please open your Bibles to Matthew 25? We've been in Matthew for the better part of a year now. This morning will be my last sermon in Matthew until March of next year. So before we look at our passage for this morning, let me remind you of where we've been in Matthew. Matthew is organized around five major discourses, as scholars refer to them. The first is obvious. It's the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7. Then you have in chapter 10, the commissioning of the 12. And then in the middle of it all are a number of parables about the kingdom in chapter 13. The fourth discourse is in chapter 18. It's um, teaching or instruction on the church and community within the church. And then the discourse that we've been in for the last couple of weeks is the final one. It is the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse gives us Jesus' words about the last days of human history. His words in our passage are His final words in this fifth and final discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. They are His last words about the last days. They are speaking of the final judgment that will happen on the final day when Christ returns. His final words are like the closing remarks in a courtroom. As you know from watching a lot of television, the closing remarks in a courtroom are very important. But Jesus' closing remarks, just so you don't allow that image from television to inform your view of this, His final words, His closing remarks, are not the closing remarks of a prosecuting attorney. They are the final remarks of the judge. In a bench trial, the judge has the role of examining all of the evidence in the case, then determining on the basis of that evidence whether or not a person is guilty or innocent. The judge also has the role of pronouncing a sentence. Here, in chapter 25, in Jesus' closing remarks, he begins by reminding us who's on trial, then he lets us know what evidence he will consider in making his judgment, and he tells us what sentence he will give for both the guilty and the innocent, as it were. But one thing that is really unique about Jesus' closing remarks is they were given long before the trial would ever take place. As Dirk pointed out last week, there is a delay between Jesus' first coming and His second coming. So there's a delay between these critical closing remarks in our passage and the day when the trial will take place. Well, what does that mean for us? That means that we have time to learn from his closing remarks. We can respond to his closing remarks now in such a way that will affect that future trial when he returns. 
And we must respond to these final words of Jesus because they are of utmost importance. How we respond to them will determine our eternal destiny. So with that in mind, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. This is what Jesus says. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will set on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus' final words about the final judgment. They teach us three critical truths for us this morning. First, they teach us about a division. A division that will divide all humanity into two groups. Second, they teach us about two destinations— the two destinations of these two groups. And third, they teach us about what data or evidence will determine the destiny of these two groups. So a division, two destinations, and determining data. Those are the three things we are going to cover this morning. Let's begin with the great division. What we learn in verses 31 to 33 is that everyone will be on trial. More specifically, we learn that when Jesus returns, 
he will divide all humanity into one of two groups. When Jesus returns, he will sit on his throne as king and judge all of humanity. In our government, we have a division of powers. So our president does not serve on the Supreme Court. He does his thing, they do their thing. But for Israel's kings, it was common for the king to also sit as a judge. And when Jesus returns as king, he's already enthroned as king, but when he returns as king, he will sit on his throne to judge all of humanity. He will gather all peoples from all nations before his throne, and then he will separate all of those people into two groups, like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In the ancient Near East, and I'm told this even happens today in the Middle East, it is common for shepherds to tend both sheep and goats in the same flock. The sheep and the goats would be all together during the day, but then at night, the shepherd would separate them into two groups. We're not certain the reason. Some people think that it's because they didn't rest well when they were together. Others would say that the goats get cold easier than the sheep, and so the goats would need to be huddled together in a group at night in order to stay warm. We don't know the exact reason why they did this, but we know that the sheep and goats, at the end of the day, were separated into two groups. And the same will be true of all of humanity at the end of history. The sheep are those who belong to Christ, the great shepherd. They will be on his right. The goats on his left. There is a great diversity within our world, even within our community. While many people from different nations, however, are so different from one another, when all is said and done, when the last chapter has been opened, we will see that there are really only two kinds of people, sheep and goats those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and those who are not. Those whom Jesus knows and those to whom Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. And he says that even to people who thought that they did know him. So what will happen after Jesus divides humanity into these two groups of sheep and goats. They will be judged, and then they will be sentenced. I'm going to focus on the sentencing first, because that's where Jesus begins in our passage. What sentence does Jesus pronounce on each group? What is their final destiny? This is what we learn. The destiny of the sheep will be eternal life, 
the goats will face eternal punishment. The destiny of the sheep, eternal life. The goats, eternal punishment. Let me show this to you. In verse 34, we see the destiny of the sheep on his right. He says to them, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then leave your finger there and take note of verse 31 and the contrast, I mean 41, and see the contrast there. To the goats on his left, he says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the sheep, he says to them, come. To the goats, he says, depart. To the sheep, he pronounces a blessing. To the goats, he pronounces a curse. The blessing for the sheep will be the eternal kingdom prepared for them. The curse of the goats will be the eternal fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. We see something similar in the concluding verse, verse 46, which kind of ties all of this passage together. He speaks first of the goats here. He says, And these, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. These are Jesus' final words about the final judgment. He says each group will be given a life sentence, as it were. Actually, an eternal life sentence. The sheep will be given eternal life in the eternal kingdom of heaven. The goats, eternal punishment, eternal fire in hell. What I want you to see at this point is the stakes are really high. We're not just talking about having to pay damages. We're not just talking about having to spend a little bit of time in the can. This is about eternal life or eternal death. The sentence is final. And it is forever. Now, there are many people today, even evangelicals, in increasing number, who are very uncomfortable with what I just said. They don't like the concept of eternal punishment, or as our statement of faith says quite explicitly, eternal conscious punishment. They don't like the doctrine of hell. Some even deny it. It's not just a matter of I don't like it, but they deny it. There are universalists who say that eventually everyone will be saved. Eventually everyone will go to heaven. Others are annihilationists who say that eventually the unbelievers, although they go to hell, they won't be there forever, they will be annihilated, they will cease to exist eventually. Now, I don't have time to deal with universalism or annihilationism or really even a robust treatment of the doctrine of hell. If you'd like to learn more about some of those, you can read about them in Evangelical Convictions 
which is a commentary on our statement of faith. I simply want to make two points this morning. First, Jesus spoke about hell. Jesus, the loving one, the tender shepherd, he spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And he spoke about hell more than he spoke about a host of other topics. And so if we are going to deny or minimize the doctrine of hell, we are going to have to do so by throwing out a lot of what Jesus himself talks about. The second point I would make is that Jesus in this passage and in others places heaven and hell right next to each other in complete parallel. He speaks of eternal punishment in the same breath that he speaks of eternal life. So logically, it would follow that if you are going to say that hell is not forever, then maybe you need to be prepared to say heaven is not forever either. Now, I understand why people don't like the doctrine of eternal punishment. I get it. But we need to be careful about picking and choosing the doctrines that we like or that fit our sentiment about who we think God is or who we think Jesus is at the expense of what God has revealed to us expressly in His Word. I would also say that we need to be careful on this basis. If we lose eternal punishment, I'm convinced we lose a lot of the gospel. If we do away with the bad news, aren't we doing away with some of the good news as well? If Jesus isn't coming a second time to judge sinners, then why did He need to come the first time to save them In the first place, if we deny the eternal curse, then are we also losing the eternal blessing? Jesus' teaching, I think, is clear. The sentencing will be final and forever. The goats will efface eternal punishment. Praise God, however, that the sheep will obtain eternal life. We shouldn't be so bothered by the doctrine of judgment. We should be so amazed by the doctrine of salvation and God's grace. Let's look now at what evidence will determine the final destiny of every person who has ever lived. This is really the main point of the passage, and so it will take us a little longer than the previous two points. This is what we learn. Our destiny is determined by what we do with Jesus' disciples. Our destiny is determined by what we do with Jesus' disciples. Now, that may seem like a weird sentence, but I'm going to spend the rest of our time unpacking what it means. It's really interesting to me that the sheep and the goats in this passage are not surprised by where they end up, either in heaven or in hell. 
They're surprised by the reason that they end up in either heaven or hell. The reason Jesus gives to the sheep, the the reason that they will inherit the kingdom of heaven is because they fed Jesus when he was hungry. They gave him something to drink when he was thirsty. They clothed him when he was naked. They visited him when he was sick or in prison. And they say to him, but when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink. This is verses 37 to 39. When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? To which Jesus replies in verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, so you did it to me. And similarly to the goats in verse 45, he says, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These are the two key verses, I believe, in verse 40 and 45 of the passage. Jesus is saying the main evidence in the final judgment will be how people treated the least of these, his brothers. He says that how you treated the least of these is how you treated him. How you respond to the least of these is how you respond to Jesus. And that therefore determines your destiny. Now thinking readers of Matthew 25, Christians who have studied the Bible for a lot of their lives, as they read a passage like this, at least two major questions emerge that must be answered. The first is, is Jesus saying that we are saved by works? And the second question is, who are the least of these that he is speaking about here? Let's begin with the first question. Are these verses teaching us that we are saved by works. After all, Jesus does ground the final judgment on whether or not we do good to the least of these, his brothers. Well, the answer to this question is no. Jesus is not teaching that we are saved by works. But why? On what basis do I say that? Well, first of all, we need to think about the context of the whole book of Matthew. How does Matthew begin? In verse 121, it begins by telling us why Jesus came. He came to save his people from their sins. How does the book end? Beginning in the very next chapter, chapter 26, by showing us that Jesus goes to a cross and then is risen from the dead. And in chapter 26 at the Last Supper, Jesus tells us why he had to go to a cross. His blood had to be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the beginning and the end of the gospel make it clear that Jesus came to save his people from their sins by dying for them as a substitution on the cross. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by faith in Christ's work on the cross. 
Another reason I say this is not teaching salvation by works is found right here in our passage in verse 34. When Jesus addresses the sheep, he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The eternal kingdom that was prepared for the sheep that will stand before the throne on judgment day was prepared for them before they were even born. Before they ever had a chance to do anything good or bad. If that is the case, then it seems to follow that salvation is not based off of our works, but on God's grace. But with all of that said, the Bible repeatedly teaches us that those who come to Jesus in faith for salvation, those who belong to His kingdom based off of His work, will be changed. They will be changed from the inside out. They will be given new hearts as the new covenant said that they would. New hearts. They will not simply have an external righteousness like the scribes and the Pharisees. They will obey from the inside from transformed hearts. They will bear fruit, is another way to put it, in keeping with their repentance. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about fruit. He's not saying you're saved based off of your own works. He's saying your works are the evidence that you have been saved. They demonstrate that a person has come to Jesus in faith and has received rest for their souls. But what about the second question? Who are the least of these that Jesus is speaking of? Is Jesus simply saying that Anybody who does good to the poor and to the weak, generally speaking, prove to be sheep and belong to the kingdom of heaven? Is this simply about general humanitarian help in this world? I don't think so. I think Jesus is speaking specifically about the way we receive His disciples and the way that we treat other brothers and sisters in the family of God. Notice, he says, whatever you do for the least of these, my brothers. Now, if you look at the way that the word brothers is used in Matthew, and actually in all of the rest of the New Testament, it refers to to Jesus' disciples. Think of chapter 12, where Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So the brothers are specifically Jesus' disciples. And because Jesus has an inextricably, an inextricable solidarity with his people, the way we treat his people is the way that we treat Jesus. That's the main thing that is being taught in this passage. If a person receives his disciples, they receive him. In the second discourse, chapter 10, 
as Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go and proclaim the gospel, listen to what he says. Whoever receives you receives me and the one who sent me. Doesn't that sound a lot like Matthew 25? He goes on to say, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. To receive the messenger of the gospel and to receive the message that that messenger brings is to receive Jesus. That was his argument in chapter 10. In chapter 18, in the fourth discourse, we see something similar. Jesus repeatedly talks about how we treat the little ones or the so-called children who believe in Jesus. He makes it clear that the reception of the little ones and the reception of Him are one and the same things. I want you to notice something. That word, little ones, in chapter 18 and in chapter 10, and the word, least of these, in our passage, have the same, they're the same root word. And so... They are connected. Jesus says, for example, in chapter 18, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whatever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Hopefully the point is clear. When Jesus says, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me, He is not speaking of good deeds in general, as important as those are, but of the way one responds to and receives Jesus' disciples specifically. Now, don't get me wrong. It is good to do good to all people. Earlier in chapter 22, Jesus says, Love your neighbor. That's speaking of all people as yourself. But here, he is speaking specifically of the way we treat other believers in the body of Christ or the way an unbeliever receives a believer who is coming to them with the gospel. It's similar to what Paul said to the Galatians. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone especially to those who are of the household of faith. Jesus has such solidarity with His people that the way we receive those who bring the gospel and the way we treat those in the body of Christ is the way that we receive and treat Jesus. That's why when Jesus appeared to Paul on the Damascus road, what did He say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. He was persecuting the church. Not, not the ascended Jesus, but it was as if he was persecuting Jesus, the head, as he was persecuting the body. I've taken a lot of time to show that this passage is not teaching salvation by works. It's rather speaking about the evidence that will accompany those who have been saved by grace. 
And in Jesus' final words about the judgment on the final day, He is pointing to one specific evidence that will reveal whether a person belongs to Him. It has to do with how we treat His disciples. He's given His closing remarks for the final judgment. A final judgment that we will all one day face. But today, we still have time to respond to these words. That's what's so remarkable about these closing remarks. Jesus gave His closing remarks at His first coming so that we would be ready for His second coming. Important final words. We would do well to take advantage of them now. So how can we rightly respond to Jesus' words? How can we apply them to our lives today? I want to close with a couple of diagnostic questions. I want to do a little bit of fruit inspection, as it were. What is the evidence in our life? And what does it say about our final destination? I want to offer two applications. The first is directed to those who are here and who are not yet Christians. If you are here today in this room, you have certainly had interaction with Jesus' disciples, His brothers, sisters, mother. Maybe it's through your own parents. Maybe it's through a Christian friend or a co-worker, or even simply right now for the first time listening to me, the preacher. And as you've interacted with Jesus' disciples, His brothers, you have heard the gospel, the good news. You have heard that you are a sinner before God and deserve His eternal punishment. You have heard that Jesus died on the cross to satisfy God's wrath. And you have heard that if you repent of your sins and turn to Jesus, you can be forgiven of your sins. So the question is, what will you do with Jesus' disciples who have shared this good news with you? Will you receive them and their message? If you do, you are receiving Jesus Himself. Or will you reject them and their message? If you do, you need to know today that you are rejecting Jesus Himself. The One who will one day come again to judge the world. My second application is for those of you who identify as Christians. It's important to remember that not everyone who identifies as a Christian, is in the great shepherd's sheepfold. Some are goats. How can you tell the difference? The way that we are given in our passage this morning has to do with how we treat other Christians. So, specifically, do you love the least of these in the family of God? That's the diagnostic question. The unimportant Socially, the weak, maybe those with special needs, the poor, 
the uncool? Do you spend time with them? Or do you only spend time with the upwardly mobile in the church? Are you interested in missionaries? Do you show hospitality to new believers or to new people within the church? Are you welcoming to the elderly? Do you love the least or do you simply love the greatest in the church? Do you prioritize corporate worship weekly with the body? Are you giving your life sacrificially to build up the body? Are you serving with your time, your talents, and your treasures? Or are you too busy, too preoccupied with worldly pleasures and pursuits? 1 John 3.14 puts it succinctly, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The way that we treat one another in the body of Christ is the way that we treat Christ, the head of the body. Do you love the brothers and sisters in Christ? If not, it could be an indication that you do not love Christ genuinely. But I don't want to close on that. I'm going to close by reminding you that Christ loves the church so much that He laid down His life for the church in love. If He laid down His life in love for the church, then let us begin by responding to that love in faith. And then to lay down our life as well. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul first, my life, my all. Let's pray.